Hey, it's Dave Chang. If you're a fan of podcasts, you've no doubt heard countless mattress ads. But have you heard of Pangea Bed? Pangea Bed created an incredible mattress made from Talele latex with copper-infused fabric. As a result, it's thicker, firmer, healthier, and has antibacterial properties. I've used it for my new house in Los Angeles. It's amazing. I love it. Shop online at www.pangeabed.com to get a mattress built by people who really care about your sleep. The mattress will be shipped right to your front door for free, and you can sleep on it for the next 100 days, risk-free. Use coupon code MAJORDOMO for an additional 10% off the current promotion. While we're here, check out Ugly Delicious, my new show on Netflix. Or check out Major Domo, my new restaurant in Los Angeles. Or TheRinger.com. Now it's time for episode one of The Dave Chang Show. Hey, this is Dave Chang of the Momofuku Restaurants. You hate doing intros. I hate intros so much. It is so hard. I don't know why my brain can't make this happen easier. And this is my new podcast, The Dave Chang Show, on the Ringer Network. Ringer Podcast Network. The Ringer Podcast Network with Major Domo Media. Yeah. I'm Bill Simmons. I'm only on the first couple of these because we thought we would do the pre-opening diaries that we started recording in December (laughs) of 2017. And we have five episodes that we're going to play of basically what it's like to launch a restaurant. Give them the quick thumbnail version of this, Dave. Well, I mean, part of it is sort of like a therapy session. And Bill was really curious as to what happens with the opening of a restaurant. Not just the opening, but what's it like to find a space? How long does it take? Yeah, this is a very important opening for us, the Major Domo restaurant. And the thousands of decisions that go involved and the team creation and the menu creation and sort of the legacy issues that were outstanding. And and I guess it just sort of covers my general neurosis. And I don't even know if it covers all that, all that much, but it definitely makes me sound like a very crazy person. So we taped it from December through April. Yes. And the third episode, we're catching you right in the middle of this. The restaurant's about to open. You're about to fly to Korea for the Olympics. You're about to launch a Netflix show. Yeah, I think it's important to like note, like episode one, this is all very different. And I wanted to like document some of the feelings because I felt that it might be good for not just myself, my staff, or people coming into the restaurant in general. But also, it was just a crazy time, right? And anxiety. There was a lot of anxiety pre-opening around December. And if I sound like really unsure of myself and almost depressed, because I was, it's a lot to handle. That's what episode one was about. It was just about how we got here and what's going to happen with the opening of the restaurant. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it for the listeners. (laughs) Episode two and three. Are we talking about all this stuff now? Well, we have five episodes. The first three are before the restaurant opens. The fourth one is after it's opened. And then the fifth one is kind of after, after it opened and what's next. Yes. We're going to label them very carefully on the feed as the pre-opening diaries. If it's not a pre-opening diary podcast, it'll be labeled something else. So you'll always know it's part of the series. Yes. But then tell them what else will be in this feed. We'll have the Dave Chang show, which is going to be my podcast that's going to talk about culture, art, food, current affairs, a little bit of everything. Going to food you're obsessed with, food I'm obsessed chefs with, chefs you're obsessed with, dishes you're obsessed with. Yeah, and how things that happen in the restaurant or the culinary world can sort of tie into other things in life. Jalen Rose used to call it. He used to be like, you know, because he was an ex-player. I'm going to pull you behind the curtain for a second. I'm going to show you 
what it's actually like behind here. That's what we're trying to do with this food podcast. Yeah, for instance, or not food podcast. For instance, podcast. one of the first things I'm thinking about, and this is going to sound ridiculous, was someone broke a craft, an ice craft near the ice machine, right? And what do you do? In a busy restaurant. In a busy restaurant and all the things that explains and talks about and the do's and the don'ts and and like how that preparedness or lack thereof can have like meaning elsewhere. So I don't know. That's just something that just came in the top of my head that is totally relatively meaningless, but- But could be something, something down yeah. the road. And for the pre-opening, what's it like when a critic walks into your restaurant? What it's like during the last two weeks when you don't even know what's going to be on the menu? What it's like to test out your menu, not in your restaurant, but at people's homes. You're going to find out all this stuff. And then eventually it will morph into the Dave Chang show. Yes. Yes. And at some point there will be an all Redskins podcast, but we don't know when. Maybe like 50 episodes in. That would be amazing if we could really start a fund to buy the Redskins just to tell the world what a terrible owner Dan Snyder is. <laughs> well, if it, maybe if the podcast takes off, maybe this will be, this be, be the, the first, first part of the fund. So sit back, relax. Episode one of the pre-opening diaries is coming. Again, we taped this in December. Anything else you want to plug or mention before we get to this? No, I, I'm just asking everyone that listens to be patient. I promise you it'll get better. Yeah. And remember, full transparency. He's bearing his soul here with a lot of this stuff. <laughs> be tender. He's he's a gentle guy. Just trust us. Hold our hands as we walk you through the fire. <laughs> I mean, Bill makes episodes. this look easy. This is, this is really different, right? So, But eventually, we're going to have celebs, all, all kinds yeah. of people. You're taking this and running this, and eventually, we'll see if we can book Joe House. Eventually. I think Joe House has to come sooner rather than later. Yeah, we'll He see. just can't eat at the restaurant. Yeah. Episode one, pre-opening diaries, taped in December, right now. So, we're going to talk about the major domo. Well, you should explain how you how you came up with the major domo name. Yeah, so so the major domo name, it's it's crazy because now it's like proliferating to all these other things. I was trying to write in Chinese characters what Momofuku meant. And my Chinese, I can't even write kanji. So I wrote what was a variation of Lucky Peach or Momofuku in Chinese characters. And then I had it translated to someone else who read it. And there's like, that doesn't mean that at all. It means like a head of household or something like that. Yeah. And it was by total accident that we sort of gotten major domo. And then I was like, oh, I've heard that word before. And then it means all these other things besides it being a super cool restaurant name. It has like a variety of meanings. It's kind of like the master, right? Or like uh, the, it's just like uh, the way I'm interpreting it is like the person that's in the know, right? It's, it's great. As soon as you told me the name, I was like, "Wow, that's a great name!" Right? It sounds Japanese, but it's not. It's actually Latin for uh, major dominus. And then I love these juxtapositions of weird esoteric Asian words in English, and I just thought it was perfect. It has the same sort of syllable pronunciation, a vowel pronunciation of Momofuku. You knew you had stumbled onto something good when the guy had been squatting on Majordomo.com since 1996. <laughs> yeah. That was a great yeah. set. Anything that's been squatted on since 1996 is a good name. It's a good name. And it just sounds cool and it has to have meaning and like major sounds something. Domo sounds Japanese. And there's all these other ways we can split that name because we've had a lot of luxury with uh, Momofuku. So some ways, I just think that Major Domo is West Coast Momofuku. So this podcast is catching you at a cool time in your career because you moved to LA. You're launching this restaurant in Los Angeles called Major Domo for the first time you've been in this city with food. Yeah. I mean, I've been coming to LA for many years now, and this is the 
it takes a completely different context when you're going to actually open up a restaurant. So I've been going to Santa Monica Farmer's Market for many years, but I've never actually looked at it in the prism that like, oh man, maybe this ingredient will go into a dish that I'm going to make. Hmm. So everything's different now. You've been stocking the farmer's markets. Yeah. You love it. You have the Atwater Market, you have Hollywood on Sundays, Santa Monica on Wednesdays and Saturdays. People of Los Angeles don't understand how blessed they are to have year-round unbelievable product. I knew it the first year I moved here and then I forgot. And then you came here and you were so passionate about it that it it reminded me how lucky I am. It's amazing. That's truly one of the best reasons to live in Los Angeles is to get amazing avocados and then strawberries. And the farmers just genuinely care so much about your input and what they want to grow. And it's super delicious stuff. So people always say that. It's almost cliche. Oh, a chef wants to utilize the green market here. But I don't think people quite understand what it's like. It's like skiing on East Coast mountains. And then you finally get to like the Rockies. You're like, whoa, this is amazing, right? This is a whole different playing field. I was going to say, you're almost like a basketball coach who finally has all the players to run your offense. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. This a little is great. Bit. I got Chris Paul and James Harden and Kevin Durant. It's totally different. LA's presented its own challenges, which is why I think this podcast is a good thing to talk about in terms of opening a restaurant that's localized just in LA and also the general problems and the high drama of opening up any restaurant without the context of like a reality show, right? Like I always feel that. So there's always so much natural drama in restaurants in general, particularly the pre-opening that it's good to share that because- I think it gives context to a diner that's eating there. They don't know this stuff. I just know nothing about restaurants and how the sausage gets made, basically. And every time you've ever talked to me about this, it was a hundred times more complicated than I ever imagined. It's incredibly stupid and Sisyphean in its sort of task. It's like giving birth in some ways. Anytime you speak to like a director or some kind of creative that is giving birth to a piece of work, It's very similar, but it has its own idiosyncratic stupidity. So I don't know why we do it over and over and over again, because there's a moment where everything seems possible. And then you realize like, oh my God, why did I even do this again? This is all, all the odds are stacked against me. It's funny because I've launched a few things as well. And you do hit a moment where you're like, how is this going to happen? There's like this panic sets in at some point. And then you hit a second point down the road where it's like, wow, this is happening. Yeah. Okay. Okay point of no return. That's sort of where I'm at right now. I'm actually terrified. Every day I wake up thinking that this is going to be the biggest joke in LA. I think it's going to either really be great or it's going to be Ishtar-like bad. (laughs) So, um, which I think is a great move. I always liked Ishtar, but- Well, can you go backwards? So you've been thinking about this for what, three and a half years? We signed this deal about three and a half years ago. We signed a lease. Okay. So Um, you knew where you're going to be. You're in this part that's past Chinatown. We're North Chinatown, near Dodger Stadium. Technically, it's called Elysian Park. I remember seeing it and being like, wow, that is crazy. This is a crazy raw space. And I remember seeing downtown locations like seven, eight years ago. When people were saying that downtown was taken off. No, this is like even before, oh, before so a lot of that like, stuff. Like, this oh, is nine. like pre-Bestia. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, And I was like, no one's ever going to come down here. This is just insane. You didn't know about Uber yet, though. I didn't think that Uber was going to completely alter Los Angeles. No city has been altered more by ride sharing than Los Angeles. People drink and people go anywhere now because of that. But 
you know, downtown. And I just remember thinking like, oh man, like I feel like such a dope for not expanding to downtown LA back then. And I was like, I'm not going to do that again. And it's not just about like, I don't want to be part of a gentrifying movement. It's simply about like, how do we do something awesome that adds to the awesomeness, right? Yeah. So we've looked at a lot of spaces and we've been looking at LA for, oh my God, since 2006. We've had some very near misses. Um, we almost open up near some famous properties in the Hollywood area. What are you looking for when you're thinking like, I'm going to LA? Like what rank your top three things you want from location to competitors to what, what do you, how do you survey it? I mean, LA, I, I think you need something iconic about the space. There's a sense of time and place that, that is important. So when we were going to open up, that was the first thing that I always thought about. It has to have a location that is meaningful. What makes it meaningful? There's got to be something different about it. Like Bestia, when I first went there, I was like, I didn't even know this area was here. This is cool. Whoa. Right. And you just, it felt, I felt like more of an experience than just walking into a restaurant. Because that's what LA to me is, as I discover more and more about it. It's these pockets of buildings and architecture that could only exist in like that specific area, even yeah. though it might not make any sense. And then is it accessible? Right. Yeah. Like I, I remember this years ago. It's like people, I didn't understand why someone wouldn't drop me off at my hotel because it was in the other direction. I, now I get it. I'm like, <laughs> right. I'm sorry, man. I'm not going to drop you off. And that was something that I didn't understand then. I have a much better understanding now because this is a sprawling suburbs like city where if you're on Santa Monica, you're really never going to leave that area of Santa Monica. It's pockets. Just, it's pockets. Yeah. So made me think like, if you're going to create a concept or restaurant in that location, how do you create something that is going to be compelling enough where people will leave their comfort zone? And that gets tougher and tougher in the Postmates era. Yes. It's tougher and tougher to get people to go more than 20 minutes anywhere. And that sort of goes back into that first thing about having this iconic like location. Uh, you know, I think one of the great locations for a restaurant was the old, um, oh my God, what's the Republic space? What was oh, it before? Republic. Yeah, oh, wait, when, Campanile. When Campanile. Like yeah. Charlie Chaplin's office. Yep. It's so cool and it's got so much history. And the fact that it's a restaurant, it could only exist there. Right. So. Well, and also, you're talking like going back to your LA thing that's on La Brea, right near Wilshire. It's 20 minutes from seven different places. It's and a you great, can be like Hollywood Hills, it's 20 minutes. Beverly Hills, 20 minutes. Hancock Park, 10 minutes. Um, downtown LA, 20 minutes. And that, those were the ones that usually seemed to make it in LA. And Nancy Silverton, like known that about that area for a long time, because Moats is there, the Moats Plex. So locations, locations important. And I think the third thing is, is like, what kind of food are you going to make in that location, in that sort of iconic area? Do you feel like the food has to be, the customer can describe it in a sentence or the customer will just tell a friend, the food's great, just go there? Does it have to have like a brand, I guess is my point. Yes. I can expound about this much more. Um, it's important that you're able to explain what you're doing in a sentence or two sentences tops. I still haven't figured out how to do that with the food we're doing at Major Domo. But well, do um, it with Momofuku. So explain it. I still sentence. don't know how to explain the food at Momofuku after all these years. Because um, I hate it when people are like, oh, you just make Asian food. And I'm always like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> it always makes me so upset. But like, when I need to, like, if someone asks me and they're they're not in the food world, I oftentimes say, oh, we just make something that's Asian. And then they go, oh, do you make sushi? I'm like, no, not really. So I think Momofuku has always been this something that is um, 
Asian American sometimes. It's sometimes more American. Like we've embraced definitely different things, but um Can I tell you what I think the brand was? Sure. I think you became the brand of Momofuku. I think it was like <laughs> their chef's great there. You gotta go there. They have a great chef. And that became the one sentence explanation. More than the food. It's possible, but like Momofuku to me has always been about the people. Like I've gotten way more credit than I that I ever deserved, but we've had amazing people and we've always been able to tell different stories. So, you know, it's like nothing better than saying, oh, I'm opening a steakhouse. Like that's so easy. APL. APL. Or I'm opening up sushi. When you do something a little bit bigger than that, that's hard and it's a little bit more confusing and I'm really trying hard not to confuse anyone. I think the best way when someone says, hey, what kind of food are you serving? Or when your friend goes to you and says, hey, let's go out to dinner Thursday night, where you want to go? Let's say we want to go to Major Domo. They're like, what do they serve? It's like, uh, it's hard to describe, but you want to go. It's awesome. I don't know how to talk about it. It's awesome. You don't hear restaurants described like that too much, right? It has to fit into a certain kind of category. Do you worry that I would say the one strike against you potentially in LA is just that- People don't know who you are. It's possible. People know who you are, but also like on the East Coast, if you did this, everyone would know who you are. I think that comes with pros and cons. You have to live up to some kind of legacy. And I've thought about this this restaurant opening for a long time. You don't want to open up something that you could get somewhere else in LA because food in LA is so great right now that you want to be a good neighbor, but you also want to add value. You don't want to, I mean, just do the same thing someone could get in another part of town. That's really difficult. That's why I thought, you had such a great chance to succeed here because whatever you're going to bring to the table does not exist right now in LA. I don't think. I mean, we'll see. Like this, this is why I'm so fucking terrified about this because (laughs) you're almost like bearing your soul, like completely naked to a public and you're hoping for good results and a good review and having experienced um, some of the worst reviews I've ever had in New York. Cause I've always had good reviews for the most part. It is like, it's the worst feeling in the world to get. Can pummeled. we talk about that? Sure. We had opened up Australia and Toronto and Washington, D.C. in like 2010 to 2015. We hadn't really done a new project in New York. While we had opened up Fuku, the sort of fried chicken sandwich shop, we hadn't done a new concept. And we had taken on some investors and we made some changes. And I think a lot of this was a reflection on... The fact that as Momofuku grew, we have like many employees and huge staff of people. I just didn't know how to um, go about doing things. And I can blame everyone else, but ultimately most of these responsibilities are on me. And I opened up a restaurant that was not right. Because historically speaking, every time we've done something, we've always edited as we've gone. I'm a big stickler for looking at the data, it's almost like in in football where a coach changes stuff during halftime. Yeah. Right? Like, I love that stuff because it's like in the moment and you're processing information and you know you have to make some in-game decisions. And I think that I've gotten really good at that. But the problem is, as our profile and restaurant group has become more mature, what worked for us in the past was not going to be accepted by the public anymore. Because expectations are too high or you had been running the same playbook a couple too many times? Maybe that, you know... It's funny, you said this with Paul Thomas Anderson on the on the recent podcast about his movie, um, Phantom Thread, where he was like, you don't want to be that director that can't direct your certain age. You know, and you have to be sensible about who you are and your coolness factor and your maturity level. And I had to eat crow and medicine tasted like shit, but ultimately I thought that I could open up a restaurant like I had done in the past. And that was bare bones. 
with what seemed to be almost little calculated thought. But the reality was, is the restaurant public wanted something greater than that. And I completely miscalculated it. So you opened it under the expectation that people would understand this is a work in progress. And at like the two-year mark, it was going to be the restaurant it yeah, was? Yeah, but it's not just that. It's sometimes you, it makes sense to you. You think it's going to make sense to everyone else. Right. And it, and just, it didn't. just didn't. So what do you think they missed? They didn't miss. We've obviously changed it recently, and it's it's been doing great. I think one of the problems was I was so hesitant. You lose confidence sometimes. Yeah. And my confidence at that period was at an all-time low for a variety of reasons. But I was trying to delegate. I was trying to empower everyone else around me to make the right decisions. I was trying to get people to make decisions that I wanted them to make. I don't know how to describe this. Like, Oftentimes when I'm building the culture and the team, I'm trying to do things that are contrarian to popular opinion or conventional wisdom. And everyone around me, I think, was thinking that I was out of my mind. Like, I can't remember specific decisions, but they were like, no, that's that seems so stupid. We're not going to do that. We're going to do it this way. And then I'm like, oh, maybe they're right. The guys and girls around me. So I was like, I'm just going to let them do it because I feel like maybe I've lost my mojo or I'm wrong, right? So I let them do it and I actually fuck it up by not editing enough and not finding that that balance where it's not just delegating, you're working together as a team. And I just handed it off too completely to other people. I didn't put them in positions to succeed. Did so, you know, even as you were launching that you were in trouble or do you talk yourself into, it's fine, it's going to be great? I still feel that if I had to do it all myself, it would have worked. But you were you had ten other things going on. That I had a lot of other things, and I couldn't be there. You know, and another thing, I was like recently married, and that's a whole other thing that I haven't yet to figure out that balance. Yeah, because I could just pour myself into work, and that's how I do it, man. Like I got to fucking grind it out. Who? Where do you have kids? Yeah, <laughs> I, this is real. This is probably the biggest challenge I've ever had professionally. Is it's so important to me to have a balanced life now, but I've only known one way to work in the past, and that yeah. is just to to pummel myself into submission and everyone else around me into submission. We're going to find a way to like make it work. And Nishi, we had a great team. We had a lot of people from Co came back and it just, nothing quite meshed together. Nothing quite gelled together. Nothing quite worked. And it was really shitty to realize that all the reasons that didn't work were because of me, yeah. not anyone else. So when did the review come out? The New York Times, we got bad reviews from Ryan Sutton and basically everyone, New Yorker, it was the first time we got randomly panned and they were all right. And I couldn't accept it. You were just mad at everybody. I was mad at everyone. And I, st we could talk a whole thing about restaurant criticism and criticism in general. It's really hard because the way we financed it and the way we did everything, people thought because we've been so successful, we were just, you know, floating in money. That just wasn't the case. What we could open up and what we could afford, we did. So there's the discrepancy between what people, I think the public thought of us. I mean, I think people in general think I'm way richer than I actually am, but we got bad reviews and Pete Wells really crushed me and it was very personal. I took it very personal. And So is that somebody you had a history with or you feel I've like he Pete was- I've known Pete for a long time, but as a critic, you just put this wall back up and you basically imagine that it doesn't exist, right? You've never met them before. And Pete crushed me. It was really hard. And then also the New Yorker was happening around the same time because they were profiling him. They were profiling him? Yeah. Oh, and we were the restaurant in it. And my oh, mind so it was, was like going a double, double. Yeah, my mind was going crazy. And 
one of my goals, if we're going to do this podcast, I just want to be as transparent as possible. Don't go greater David Cho no, level transparent, but you can go like on this, but 75%. This is going to be like, I don't want it to be dark or anything, but I think it's just like, again, in the effort of transparency around 2015 or right, like two, three months or right around when we opened up Washington DC, there's an interview of me speaking to uh, Todd Kleiman, who was at the Washingtonian. And it's like the most bonkers ass, um, <laughs> out of my mind, verbal diarrhea I've ever done in my life. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. What I realized was I was in mania. I was like, I was literally out of my mind. You were on tilt. Full tilt. But I mean, like, I'm a pretty heavily medicated person. I, with my psychiatrist after 14 years, I was like, hey, like, I think I'm mature enough. I don't think I need to be on all the stuff anymore. And I was off it. And then I opened up DC and like that whole year, I was like, in retrospect, I was making decisions that were horrible decisions for me because everything seems so like juicy in my mind Yeah, that like, oh, this is exactly what needs to happen. I think that came like full realization when Nishi was happening. I was like, wait a second, like I need to be my worst critic myself. And I wasn't. Yeah, And I was able to see this once I got back on all the crap that I'm on. It allowed me to see very quickly, like, whoa, I, I was really out of my mind, like genuinely. I can identify with some of this because I didn't know you that well during that time, but it did seem like you were overextended. And I think one of the hardest things to kind of learn how to navigate when you're successful is to not do everything. So hard. Because you go from your dream in life is just to have one good thing happen and to break down the door and, and make enough money doing what you love to just buy a house. But then you hit this point where it's like, oh, you could do this and this and this. And people are offering you stuff all the time. And your instinct until you know any better is to just do everything. And if everybody hits a point where you're like, I'm doing too many things and I'm not doing anything that well. And this is bad. And how did I get here? And it sounds like that was your point in 2015. Correct. And I found my that I was always like able to get out of that, right? To break myself almost physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually to like, so I could get like get stronger. And after that review, I like, I broke, I was like completely broken and I was doing too much. And there was just all this other shit going on in my life. Everything was bad. And I hated the industry at large because there was so much greed. Everything changed. Everything became about money. And I remember telling everyone, like, I should have just worked at a bank because this job is now something that I never wanted to do. So Yeah, but you still love cooking, though, ultimately. Like- I do, and I love food. But again, this there, there are topics that we're talking about that should be spoken about later because they deserve, deserve yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But I just was in a bad place. People that knew me were like, wow, you really hate the industry right now. And it wasn't that I hated the industry. I think I was I was hating myself quite a bit. And I didn't understand where things were going to go with food. I, I couldn't see the trends like I was, but I think a lot of it was things were just moving faster because of technology. And I'd made some investments in food delivery because I, I just, I was doing too much. But in my mind, I thought I was saying no to everything. Yeah. But I was actually saying no to nothing. And then, you know, picked up the pieces and we got help and brought Alex on board, who's now the president. And gave Josh Pinsky and the team at Nishi the the right environment they needed to succeed. And really it was like a scaling back of me in many of the restaurants and learning how to really empower people. And the biggest thing that I learned then was 
delegating doesn't mean I'm judging them in a vacuum that I'm, my goal is to hope that someone makes more right decisions than wrong decisions. And the worst thing I can do is when they fuck up to be like, dude, what the fuck? You totally fucked up. You're an idiot. So I'm still learning that process. And, you know, the restaurants are in better place. Like Nishi is doing way better. And I feel better about that because it's not about me anymore in that sense. Well, it is, it's about the people around me and allowing them to make that right decision. And um, I was dreading Los Angeles because of Nishi, really dreading. I'm still dreading it because I don't know mentally if I can take the criticism, right? Like Chen and I will fight everybody for you. <laughs> we got I, your back. I, I think that when we, you know, you become so deluded or you think it's like the narcissism element becomes such a huge thing. And I think maybe too, I, I wanted to, you see this a lot with a lot of my friends in this industry, particularly cooking. You have such a hard time dealing with success that when you hear someone sabotaging their career, you're like, why would they do that? Right. Ultimately it's because you want freedom. You want to start fresh again. And I very much wanted that feeling to just start anew. Hey, I'm a guy who has hired a ton of people. Hiring people is hard. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. They built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, running, road tripping, enjoying downtown outdoors, and more. And with the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, Audible lets you fill your summer with more stories like Shoe Dog. It's probably my favorite book I've read in the past couple of years about Phil Knight. As an Audible member, you'll get a credit every month, good for any audiobook, regardless of price. Unused credits roll over to the next month. And if you didn't like your audiobook, you can exchange it for no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. Go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Better yet, you can switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off, whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at your home on an Amazon Echo. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Just go to audible.com slash majordomo or text majordomo to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Majordomo, M-A-J-O-R-D-O-M-O, or text Majordomo to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. Well, one thing I've noticed with chefs over the years, I remember we've talked about, I don't know if we've talked about it on a podcast, but when I was living in Charlestown in the mid-90s, Todd English was one of like the first wave of hot chefs. And he had this place called Olives in Charlestown. That was awesome. And it led to all these opportunities for him. And all of a sudden he wasn't at the restaurant anymore. Yeah. And the restaurant eventually went downhill and is long gone. But it seems like chefs over and over again are in the same spot where they hit it big in their one spot, they open another spot, and then some of them just all of a sudden they go and they have 10 spots and 12 spots and they have a TV show and whatever else. And 
their soul isn't really in any of the spots anymore. Yeah. So how do you protect that? I think it's about culture and it's building people that care about it as much as you do. Yeah. And it's unfair when bloggers or critics say, oh, chef's not here because I talk this specific example with chefs all the time. It's like, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. You have to grow in order to take care of your people. And I don't give a shit if people say, oh, you're full of shit, Dave. Like, listen, I'm happy to show my tax returns. Like, I've taken very little comparatively to most people because I want to provide for people around me. Like, I did not get into this business to, I never thought I'd have the career that I've had today. Like, I genuinely got in this profession because I thought it was like truthful and honest and be able to do hard day's work and feel good about it. And the fact that it's here is totally fucking insane. And a lot of chefs of a certain age group got into this because it was like you could do something without like people caring about it and be and be great at it. And then you don't know how to deal with success. Part of the reason we became cooks is because we were emotionally immature. We probably had dependency issues. Right. We were all fucked up, but we were able to thrive in a kitchen. So when success happens, like I don't feel good whenever I see a chef flame out. It actually pains me because yeah. we don't have the network and we don't have the systems to prevent that from happening. And it's hard because I say this a lot now that like whether it's a Todd English or anyone else, because of a chef's sort of the emotional immaturity, I just don't think you're ready for the baggage that success to a chef is oftentimes the equivalent of a childhood actor becoming successful. That's interesting. It's so hard to navigate that. Or like a like a basketball player in the 1990s who got a $50 million contract when right. they were 19. But we're not making the money. That's right. the biggest misconception. Like chefs really don't make that much but money. But it's the ego, the attention, the, the fact the that you kind of stuff. made it. Like part of the reasons, like, again, you, I feel like people became a chef is because they felt like they were almost outcasts. And then all of a sudden through hard work or risk-taking, you're making a dish and through craftsmanship, you get recognition for that. And then all of a sudden, that fucks with your head, right? Like, you get instant gratification when you see a dining room like in buzz in euphoria because they're eating your food. Yeah. And not just your food, like the people around you. It's just like this, it's one of the best feelings in the world. And the congratulations, which is why I, I think one of the reasons why I've been able to navigate it better than I, I've actually surprised myself because I think I suck all the time. Yeah. And maybe that's the tiger parenting my dad's done, that nothing I ever did was ever good enough. And I've always felt that. And I've hated compliments because I think they're lies. Yeah. I genuinely believe that whenever someone compliments me, they're lying. Unless you can actually see it on their face, right? Like like when you tried my mom's rice pudding. Yeah, it was delicious. You can tell <laughs> when someone has that. It's delicious. Like that to me is like one of the greatest joys when you know truthfully when yeah. someone's having this euphoric moment. Alternatively, I want truth and no one lies to you when they tell you your food sucks. Right. <laughs> right? Like that to me, like, and that's criticism that I'm mean, like, oh, I got to do better. I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to do it better. And like to get praise fucks you up. It really does. Then you just have to live up to it week after week forever. Yeah. And then to, to finally be accepted by people for a lot of chefs, that's hard. And then money comes in and then. People just allow you to do things you never thought you had access to. So for me, I just drowned it out in booze. I drank my face off for so many years to sort of like drown a lot of that stuff out. Never drinking on the job, but from carving out a personal life pretty late in the mornings, like two to five in the morning. So yeah, I mean, I very few chefs ever make it out to like adulthood, right? Well, very it seems few. like if you're a chef, 
there's two paths that it can go and it starts to go well. One is like the chef that just has the one restaurant and it's kind of underground and people tell their friends about it and they brag, oh, you haven't gone there? You got to go there. And that's kind of the best place to be if you're a chef because you don't have a lot of the pressure of just night after night having to have all these people who expect to have this awesome experience. And then the other side is what you experience, which is you know, all of a sudden you're like LeBron or Durant, where it's like the Warriors are in town. I'm going to see Kevin Durant. I expect him to be awesome. Right. And that's a different level of expectation. It's hard. I mean, one of the things I wish that the public knew was just because you're a busy restaurant doesn't mean you're making money. And the pressure for a chef to expand or not to expand, because at least in New York, it's such a hard job. And it's a blue collar job that's been glamorized to the point where it's like, I often tell people, it's like, man, like being a cook was almost like saying, hey, I'm going to become a coal miner. I'm going to work an oil rig in Texas, right? Like that's sort of what it was like. You're just going to become an outcast almost because you want to choose to be great at something no one cares about. Or like a drummer in a rock band. Those dudes are, (laughs) those dudes break down like chefs. Yeah. The hips and backs and all that stuff. And nobody even sees them. So you you have to expand because then you're training all these people. Maybe they don't want to open up their restaurant. And then you have to have a whole support team. And all of a sudden, right? Like you got to like feed this beast. Yeah. So I never understood that. And I remember asking so many people, whether they're they're like Wolfgang Puck or Emma Lagasse. And the crazy thing is, is like, I want to say like Mario Batali, because like, that's a whole nother crazy thing that that's happening in this world of being a chef and, you know, they gave me advice and I, I don't know if people understand that, like, there's a sense of dread of responsibility for chefs yeah. because we are caregivers and caretakers and we want to take care of people. At least I do. And I respect the hell out of the chefs that have one restaurant. I just don't know if I could ever be that person because I get so bored. Yeah. I want to be that person. I want to make the same thing over and over and over again. So you have two types of chefs, in my opinion, just bear with me here in the sense that If cooking is a craft, right, then in the lowest form of craftsmanship, then being a doctor is the highest form because you have two kinds of doctors. You have the doctors that are trying to cure AIDS and cancer, and they're doing like radical breakthrough shit. And then you have the regular pediatricians. They do the same thing over and over and over again. So you can see that kind of chef as well. You have the sushi guy or the, the pizziolo, the guy that does the same thing over and over again. And through repetition, they become what the Japanese call a shokunin. Like they become a master of that. Yeah. That is like, to me, it has always been something I wish I could be, but I just have too much ADD. I can't do it because I get so fucking bored. But if you're proficient enough at being a craftsman like that, when you can actually do it, there's a different kind of like fork in the road where you're like, oh, I know how to do this. I could become like best in class and doing this over and over and over again. But now with my proficiency... I have some ideas for making it better or different. And that's where you can break off to be really creative. And I've always probably fallen in line when the, on the, like, I want to try new things out. And I think mainly the reason why I wanted to try new things out is because I never had the patience to be the craftsman. I mean, you're preaching the choir and this stuff. I, I'll do anything. <laughs> I've tried so many different things over the last 15 years. Cause my, my thing is like, I'm going to be 70 someday. And I'd be like, I wish I had tried that. I had the chance to do that. I wish I'd, you know, I I don't know. I think I'm with you. It's the ADD thing. I'm so fucking like, ADD. Oh, what's next? What's and, next? And that's why I love going to Japan because I see these masters and I'm like, oh, fuck. I wish I could just be like this dude. Like the guy at Sushi Saito, he's like 45, 46, arguably the best sushi spot in the world right now. And I'm like, man, this guy's so good and he's only going to get better. 
Yeah. And he doesn't have to deal with any of this stupid bullshit. And he just, he's there feeding like six people right. a day. And he's just worrying about the food. There's something romantic about that. But one of the things I, I guess I complain about, and I think we or myself as contributed to it is food is no longer that romantic thing at least for myself it's a business now there's so much money in food but at the same time we're, we're going to get into it with the diaries especially volume two we're going to talk about trying to figure out the menu and stuff like that you still love figuring out the dishes i mean i to me having known you for a little while that seems to be your favorite part of this is what's on the menu some new dish that you feel like nobody has done yet that you've stumbled onto some sort of magic, something that might work. I love that sense of discovery. Yeah. That's what I want. And I think historically, now that I look back on my career, it's always been about fuck you to <laughs> everything and everyone. Right. And in some ways I still want to get that hospitality. I still want that same experience that someone gets when they go to like a Danny Meyer restaurant, but I don't feel like you need to have that exact same thing. I genuinely embrace like plurality and viewpoints. And I really want to serve a dish where someone's like, oh, I didn't know you could eat it that way. Or it's educational. And like that sort of moment where like, oh, I'm an idiot is to me one of the best. I don't know why I'm so addicted to that. Well, I remember when the dinner you made at Kimmel's house last month and you did your version of the Sunnan yeah. dance. Sun the Nan Dan. short ribs, yeah. Yeah, but you did like a kind of a Chang version of it where you took like whatever was there and you're like, what if I put these three things in and yeah, just, and I mean, just I, took a swing at it? That's the part of cooking that I love the most because it allows you to tell a story. And I hate the word being an artist in this profession, but- it allows you to tell a viewpoint that maybe hasn't been explored before. Yeah. And this sounds so self-important because at the end of the day, if it's not delicious, it doesn't fucking matter. But that's the goal is like, what I want at the core is I want people to leave being like, well, however, and whatever the fuck they ate, I want people to leave a restaurant being like, that was awesome. Yeah. Like that to me brings me so much joy. You want that was awesome or I've never had that. What's more important? I want, they've never had that. But in relation to, I've never had that, but it reminds me of something that I really know well. Or I've never had it quite like that. Yeah. The older I get, the more I understand. I think nostalgia is this very important thing in food. And it's not even about, it's about making the unfamiliar familiar. That's why we love the Cassell's patty melt so much. Yeah. I've had a thousand patty melts. It's like, wow, I've never had a patty melt like this. It's not about making something that's so different that people are like, oh, I will never eat that. You want to make food, at least I do, that people are like, I want to eat that. And I don't even know what it is yet. But it's something that reminds me of something that I that I know is going to be delicious. Right. I've always viewed a restaurant into like three kinds of ways you can leave. Yeah. One is you leave being like, I got my calories for the day. It was okay. Yeah. Right? That's the worst. Being in the middle is the fucking worst. It's like being told by a guy or girl that you're a nice person. Right? <laughs> it's the worst right. compliment. Or you leave being like, that sucks. I'm never going to go back again. Right? Which sucks. But ultimately, you're, like, you're taking a viewpoint and it just didn't jive with you. Or you leave being like, I don't know what happened. I have to go back here again. Yeah. Right. And your entire day is now like rotating around. How do you eat another meal there? And you tell all your friends that you have to eat there. And that kind of excitement is something that I love to see. And it's very hard to get to, right? Word of mouth is still always going to win, but especially with restaurants, because people love telling somebody else about this restaurant they have to go to. And it's such an ephemeral thing. And to be able to be consistently good, that's the hard part. So, and how you get there ultimately doesn't matter to me. I mean, it does quite a bit, but that's what I want. And I think I surprised myself because 
I never thought I got into this profession to be hospitable, yeah. but I want people to leave ha- having like value of the money they spent, whether it was $5 or $400. I want people to feel like that was worth it. Cause there's nothing worse than to, no, nothing worse to me to go to a restaurant being like, I got ripped off. Yeah. What probably drives me a lot is I know that people go to our restaurants being thinking like, oh, I got ripped off. I want to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm. You know, last thing for volume one. Did part of the appeal of going to LA, other than that, you haven't hit this market before, that as a competitive person, this is the place right now for food? And it's almost like it would be weird if you didn't have a restaurant in LA? Everyone seems to be opening up in LA because it is, it just has so much going on. I mean, the real estate's a little bit different. The, the food scene here is so vibrant because people are open to different things. And maybe I can do something different that I can't execute anywhere else. But ultimately, I think there's a competitive thing where I have a sour note for what happened in New York recently. And I want to prove to myself that we can build a right team. We can utilize the things around us. We can be part of a neighborhood and we can make a great meal for diners that they maybe not have had before. But I'm terrified, right? Like, if we don't deliver on that, that's going to just be the worst. So that's, I guess, why I'm telling you this right now. It's like, I'm doing this. We have a great team. We have all these positive things. But anytime you open up a restaurant, it is the worst feeling in the world, right? You just have no idea what's, what's going to happen. And there's so many bad things that can happen. That, who knows, right? So the next couple of volumes of, of the diaries here, which will be only one of the podcasts you get on this feed, you're going to go deep dive into how you come up with the menu, why it takes so long to open a restaurant, all the things that can go wrong. And we're going to try to time it so that it leads into when you actually open. And then we'll go into, there'll be a couple more volumes of here's what happened the first week. I realized I needed to get rid rid of this off the menu. I got this review and it actually hurt my feelings or it was actually too complimentary. We're going to go in. We're going deep dive. You're bearing everything. Yeah. All I know is this, what I'm going to focus on that I haven't focused, what I used to always do is we're going to build the right team. Yeah. Right. You say it in your book, right? The best players are the ones that have that intangible thing where it's- The secret. The secret. Like I tell this to younger cooks all the time, or particularly younger cooks that are becoming a sous chef or a chef, it's not about cooking anymore. It's not. It has nothing to do with it. The road to being a great chef, the road to being a great restaurant is littered with the most hyper-talented chefs and cooks, but they've never made it because it's not about cooking at a certain point. It's about how do you be effective leader? How do you encourage other people? How, how do you, you work together? How do you work together? And That's why with the ringer, like I wasn't going to do it unless it was the four people from Grantland. I was like, if I have these four, I know it's going to work. Yeah. And then I think that's what we've been doing. While we've been doing a lot of cooking that we're going to talk about, it's been about building the right culture of transparency and accountability and knowing that some days you're going to have bad days, but let's be honest about it. Like, Hey, girlfriend breaks up with you. You get dumped or you're having issues with your kid or whatever. Like in hindsight, I wish I was a little bit more empathetic, but Hey, we're human. We're going to have moments and periods where you're not as good as you should be. So that's why you're going to need everyone else to like pick up slack and vice versa when they're going through something. And I think that if you can get that moment where you have each other's backs, like amazing shit can happen. And we're even going to have a mailbag podcast down the road. Of course. You'll answer some emails. We got to get Chen to set up an email account. <laughs> Chen can go through them so, so he can vet them. But yeah, this feed is going to be- um, There's so much to talk about, Bill. A celebration slash 
you're letting people behind the curtain. Yeah. So that's it for volume one. 